Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Shazam! I don't know. Is that how I got to say it, guys? I got to add the exclamation point. I, I'm, I'm really happy to be joined today by my friends Fred Cobb. Fred, how's it going? Going great. How are you, Josh? Good. And Elijah Howard. Elijah, what's up? I'm happy to be here, man. Yeah, so Shazam is the newest film in the DC Extended Universe. It's directed by David Sandberg, and I think I think it's fair to say it's a departure from what a lot of their movies are like, but like I said, it's still in the universe. It stars uh, Asher Angel, who plays a kid named Billy Batson. He's a, he's a foster kid that's bounced around from house to house after being separated from his mom when he was younger at a, an amusement park, and then he gets taken in by this very nice foster family with this wide assortment of very cute kids, and um, one day when he's uh, still kind of uh, wandering around Philadelphia, which is where this film is set, he defends the, his uh, crippled foster brother uh, played, named Freddie Friedman, not to be confused with the Braves' first baseman, Freddie Friedman. And he is defending Freddie and uh, swings a golf club at a bully or swings a walking stick at a bully and runs off and gets on the SEPTA, which is the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority train in Philadelphia. And he <laughs> ends up he ends up where, so where we've already seen earlier our, our eventual villain ended up there when he was a young boy but he ends up uh billy ends up in this kind of hall of uh doom if you will for lack of a better term something that actually looks like it's from a dc movie and there is a wizard there played by diamon hansu hey second straight movie we've talked about him fred and he yeah this he, one was a notable improvement though Nothing right. that's saying much yeah so, that was serenity yeah yeah Jiamen Hansu plays a wizard named Shazam who's kind of looking for a successor and running out of time before he can fight off these uh gargoyles that are represent the seven deadly sins and he's like all right I'm gonna bestow my power on you Billy and then all of a sudden Billy is now uh looks like Zachary Zachary Levi and has a superhero suit and Mark Strong who had wandered in there when he was a kid said hey i wanted to be the chosen one and now i'm mad and that's basically where this movie takes off and goes and obviously i just kind of described what is largely something a little different from uh your regular dc movie origin story but it's still an origin story nonetheless but i'll say it right now i think we all enjoyed this movie to a certain extent but elijah you specifically actually reached out to me and was like I kind of want to talk about this because, I mean, I, I really, this movie surprised me a lot. So did it surprise you? Because uh, I think from the previews, they were trying to sell it pretty hard as something other than your average DC movie. And I don't think any of us are huge fans of what the DC universe has given us to date. So what, what about this movie really shocked you? Because it seems like you came in with pretty low expectations. Yeah, I mean, I to me, I felt that it was going to be a throwaway movie, um, you know, a movie kind of like Ant-Man, where it's just filler taking up time um, because and I have a, a, a slightly I mean, as it is, I'm more of a DC guy than I am of, of a Marvel person. So um, this doesn't extend to the movies. This is just my upbringing with comics. Uh, you know, I read a lot of Batman when I was a kid. So I was very disappointed with the movies thus far and i was sure i was going to be disappointed with shazam which for the people who don't read the comics um shazam is actually not the character's name the character's original name is captain marvel yeah can you give us a brief explainer on that because i I obviously haven't had time to read all the articles on the internet trying to explain why his name was captain marvel before right so captain marvel was the character's name back in the 1940s um when the character was actually uh the intellectual property of a company called fawcett comics hmm and uh, Fawcett Comics did a lot of these, you know, really uh, old school adventure type things. Like they really dialed into that, like, 
you know, Alan Quartermain sort of, they did, you know, obviously not League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but that kind of just, you know, Baroque, if you will, um, history kind of um, and aesthetic. And so Captain Marvel was a Superman knockoff. I mean, I'm going to call it what it was. Uh, and he had, you know, these powers. He had the, you know, the strength, uh, the, sorry, the, um, the wisdom of Solomon, the strength of Hercules, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And he channeled it by saying Shazam, but the character was called Captain Marvel. And uh, eventually because of the dispute with DC over how, if the character was really just supposed to be Superman in a different outfit, uh, DC eventually acquired the character and basically let the character rot for a long time <laughs> and then kind of brought him back uh, in the 80s and 90s and had rebranded him at that point as Shazam, just, you know, by the, the by his call sign, if you will. Which is um, interesting. In this movie, they never actually refer to him as Shazam by name, but it's just kind of a running gag that they can't think of a name that doesn't sound extremely lame. Right, which is something I did not expect them to do, <laughs> especially in the trailers when they keep making jokes about, you know, like, what are we going to call him? What are we going to call him? Is he going to be Captain Sparkle Fingers or whatever? <laughs> Um, I figured that they would kind of botch that and just go that, you know, really fan service route of like his name Shazam or something. But I like that they didn't. They didn't do it at all. They went with the original comics, which was just that's the magic word. It's not the name. It's just the, the magic word. Right. Well, um, Fred, uh, was, was there a certain aspect of this movie that really resonated with you? So something I want to come back to is what you said about this not being your average DC Comics movie. And I guess the question I have is, what would you consider to be an average DC Comics movie in this extended universe? Well, I don't think, they've, I think, ha- I don't think, I don't think they've had enough good movies to like bring their batting average up that high above whatever you want to call Justice League, you know? So. Yeah, which, well, to be fair, I... So let me actually very briefly touch on my history with, these, with the DC Comics go, uh, yeah, go for extended it. universe then, because I know you really didn't like Aquaman at all. I actually had a pretty good time with it. It's- and... The other movie that I actually kind of like in this whole uh, extended universe is Man of Steel. I had a pretty good time with that one. All the other train wrecks, I could not agree more, should never have been made. I didn't think Aquaman was a train wreck. I just, like, I didn't like it. I liked a couple parts of it, but, like, didn't really work for me. But I, we can, we, it seems like we agree on the majority of the universe. Right, and obviously Aquaman was a fundamentally different film than Shazam. Yes. The whole idea was that it was way more low-key. You didn't have a bunch of CGI that you threw at the screen. Which, interestingly enough, both films were directed by fairly low-budget horror directors. Right. James Wan got his start uh, with the Saw movies, and David Sandberg. Um, I'm not entirely sure what he has on his resume. He did Lights Out and Annabelle Creation. Mm-hmm. Neither, I haven't seen either, but yes, same background. And he's Swedish, R- for whatever that's worth. Right, so it's kind of interesting that they decided to go um, that particular route. But, yeah, obviously they understood that they do have the ability to do something in their universe, which Marvel can't do, because Marvel has a very specific template in place. And this whole idea that the whole Marvel canon is very much a big-budget TV show that you kind of go to the movies every few months and you see the newest episode is something that DC Comics doesn't have, because they botched the beginning of their franchise to the point where they can now kind of say, ah, we can experiment around a little bit with our franchise and see what we can do. And Shazam, I think, is a very good example of what can happen when you just try something completely different than what you've done before. 
for much of their benefit, like they don't let you forget that it's in the DCEU, but it's certainly like, and I, I've listened to a couple interviews with David Sandberg, and it seems like they he was very much left to his own devices. So it's nice that they, it seems like they were able to go off and do their own thing and, you know, like just have some fun. And, you know, like we're going to spoil this movie. I don't usually do spoiler sections for these big temple movies anyway. But, I mean, I think like i i really i just if we're talking about like my opinions on the like on the dc universe like i really only really liked wonder woman and i even thought wonder woman kind of falls apart in the last half hour because it just like yeah agreed it just has like a really stereotypical ending and a bad villain and not that i think the villain in this movie is especially strong but like i think this movie at least does its own thing and it's pretty unique all the way through to the end with just how it addresses like it's it's like okay we're gonna have to have some kind of bad guy and some kind of fight and i think if you're not going to have like a very compelling villain, they're still not on Marvel's level. I feel like in that regard with figuring out how to make villains interesting, they at least did enough other stuff around it that made it feel unique that I was like, all right, this, this never strayed too close to being like this really dark, gloomy DC type of movie. And it had, and it, it was legitimately funny. And I, I guess if we can back up a second, I mean, I, I normally say like, you know, a lot of people just kind of complain all the time about origin stories. And I'm like, you know, I'm okay with an origin story if it just feels like kind of unique, like something I haven't seen before with one of these characters I haven't seen before. I don't want another Batman origin story, obviously, but like if you can make it interesting with these people, then that that's fine. And, you know, I enjoyed the first half of this movie plenty. I mean, yeah, yes, maybe a lot of these foster kids were overly cutesy, but, you know, it was still an interesting setting to hang out in for better or worse. I, I, I don't, I don't know how you guys felt about like this movie, like being something like in the moments where it was kind of really not addressing a lot of the superhero stuff at all. But do you think it did enough, Elijah, do you think it did enough like character work and like those moments to like kind of help pay off in other aspects of the film? Yeah. I mean, I, there's a couple of things that I want to touch on regarding that, but I mean, I think, you know, when you talk about the templates and about, you know, the superhero origin stories, yeah, I mean, you're going to look at this and you're going to say, okay, this is just Spider-Man, but instead of the radioactive spider, it's a, you know, ancient interdimensional wizard. And instead of so, like a dead uncle, it's um, a band- mom that abandons you. An abandoning mom, <laughs> right. But see, to me, and while I'm not going to sit here by any stretch and tell you that this movie was better than Spider-Verse or that it's even really better than, I mean, and I'm a, you know, I'm a sucker for the Sam Raimi Spider-Mans. Um, <laughs> But I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's better. But I, I thought that was an incredibly powerful scene, um, you know, with him and his when he finally meets his his biological mother, because that was to me, it was such a great subversion of how you expect those scenes to go. Um, and that's what makes character development interesting to me is when things don't always go as planned. Right. I think a lot of times uh, DC, DC's origin stories and. Uh, Marvel, I mean, I'm not, I'm really not trying to make comparisons here, but Marvel's origin stories too are very much by the books and, you know, they're, they don't really pull any punches. And, um, I thought that was an interesting place for this movie to, to modernize and to deviate from the source material. What was pretty interesting Um, was that like in, in, well, thankfully, like in this current incarnation we have going of Spider-Man in Marvel, it. It, it, we didn't have to watch the spider bite, you know, he kind of picks up, but like at the same time, we're picking up in a moment where uh, nothing wrong with it, but it's like Peter Parker's like really excited to go like be an Avenger and he like super wants to do that. And it makes sense. But like here, it's funny to like watch someone get those powers and have absolutely no idea what to do with them. And that made it feel really unique. Right. I agree. And, um, I feel like that, you know, that examination of the, of the age old question, you know, a kid with, you know, gets superpowers. How does he use them? 
I think it was examined in a very modern context, which is also something that uh, I don't know how well these films really do a lot of the time. I feel like they sort of exist outside of time and space. And I like that this movie was not afraid to incorporate social media and, you know, school interaction, you know, modern school interactions and things like that. So, Fred, if you woke up with powers tomorrow, would you use them for good or become a YouTube star? <laughs> I don't think I would necessarily become a YouTube star, but of course, the the question that you have to ask yourself is if you're really 14 years old and you've just come into a brand new school and you haven't really made too many friends yet. I mean, that is a pretty easy way to actually impress some people or to uh, find yourself a, uh, a group of friends. I mean, obviously, he doesn't really share with anybody that um, yeah. he has those powers, except Freddy, whom he relies on because he's the only one who has a decent understanding of what superheroes are supposed to do with their powers. Right. Um, but it, I do think what Elijah said is very interesting also because a lot of times this whole idea that a kid gets superpowers and then immediately wants to start saving the world, that's really not how it would probably play out. And you don't even have to go into the superhero genre for that. Another great example is the whole Harry Potter franchise. You have an 11-year-old kid who basically goes to school and all of a sudden he has to start fighting the darkest wizard who ever existed. And he takes on that challenge with a certain amount of courage that seems a little bit excessive for an 11-year-old kid. Yeah, I forgot so that. Like, I for, yeah, that is true. Like, I think Harry Potter is 11 at the beginning of the books, and I, I, yes. I just hadn't read or watched the movies in a while, and I forgot that like he's that young, like fighting, yeah, fighting Voldemort, which seems kind of ridiculous when like there's even a big difference between like that and 14. I think after watching this movie, you know. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, when J.K. Rowling wrote those books, uh, she wasn't. She didn't really have. Uh, we didn't really have the same kind of social media presence, and obviously, that said in the Wizarding world, so that's not as much of a factor. Uh, but yeah, now that we're in 2019 uh, and everybody can watch those videos online and everything goes viral right away, um, it makes a lot of sense to incorporate that. And I thought that was actually some of the funniest stuff in the movie, um, that whole montage when you have uh, Queen playing in probably a more interesting way than Bohemian Rhapsody did in two hours. Um, I had a really good time with that. And Zachary Levi is exactly the right kind of guy for this sort of role. Somebody who doesn't take himself too seriously and kind of struts around like a peacock looking <laughs> uh, totally ridiculous in his suit, but he pulls it off and yeah, that's I, not an easy job to do. Yeah. I can, I want to ask you guys about him. Like, did you guys watch Chuck? I never watched Chuck. I watched a little bit of it. I mean, it, it, it got kind of long towards the end and I never really had the time for that, but, uh, yeah, so my, I never really watched it. My relationship with Zachary Levi was basically like limited to like the Thor movies. And I'd forgotten that he was like played the guy in th the last two Thor movies. I just skipped my mind. And then like, I, I really enjoyed him in Thor. Yeah. Really? Yeah. He, oh. he played, uh, what, what's the guy's name now? I'm already forgetting it again. Uh, in Thor, he played Fandral. And uh, yeah, and and then I, he was in the most recent season of the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and I I really enjoyed him in there. But he's like playing like a, a very Jewish doctor from New York, and so to like all of a sudden like see him playing like, I mean maybe it's not it's probably not a surprise to people that watch Chuck that's kind of a comedy, but it's like oh wow he's gonna like convincingly play like a fourteen year old that's like turned into a, like a man and is gonna be kind of go around and be kind of goofy about it, and like I 
I, I don't know. I thought I thought he was very charming, and it's like a very uh, inspired casting choice to find someone that, with that kind of resume to kind of entrust him with this property. You know, I mean, I guess it's I shouldn't say it shouldn't give him like too much credit. It's not like it's the first time that's been done. They did it with Chris Pratt. You know, like who had just been a like a chubby guy in Parks and Rec. But like I I, I really enjoyed him. You know, and it, it who knows like probably not the easiest kind of role to play. Well, see, but here, and we've had, Josh and I, we've had this conversation before about random roles from stars uh, past being their actual best preparation for a role. And Zachary Levi, I mean, having that goofiness sometimes in Chuck, that was, that's great. But I think his best preparation for this role was actually as a voice actor in Tangled, where he's the voice of Flynn Rider. Uh, the male lead. And I think I'm, I'm dead serious. I mean, that's a movie where you have to play down to that more childish nature. Um, and I think, you know, especially Flynn being that goofy proud, you know, like he, he wants to be a hero, but he's obviously not necessarily the hero of that film. Um, and so I think that that kind of helped, I would say for Zachary Levi in shaping this role where he has that, you know, that goofy energy about him where he, he wants to be a hero, but he doesn't really know how. Um, and so to get over that hump and to actually have him develop and, and, and come to understand how to be a hero, I thought that was really excellent and really pulled off well by Zachary Levi. What I find kind of interesting, and I'm not sure if that was necessarily intentional the way Asher Angel plays Billy is, is a fairly introverted kind of guy. He likes to keep to himself. He doesn't really talk a whole lot. And he's somebody who strikes you as more of a loner than an extroverted guy who necessarily wants to make friends. But as soon as he transforms, all of a sudden he can't shut up, essentially. So right. I'm wondering, is that really something that came with him becoming a superhero, something that's also part of the transformation? Or did they not really do a good job kind of matching up the young actor and Zachary Levi? What do you think about that? Um, I mean, I guess I, I, I guess I kind of accepted it at face value. I, I was like, oh man, this kid's gonna be this kid's gonna be kind of embittered and jaded, just going through the foster system like he has and uh, feeling kind of abandoned. But at the same time, he he still is a kid. So when imbued with powers, like that's gonna be kind of dope. And I, I I kind of took that for what it was. But I, I mean, I can kind of see what you're saying. Like they're they're very different. But I guess that that that's the nature of that character. And it might it maybe would feel too weird to have him be like too uh too extroverted as like a as a as a as an abandoned kid even though if he does have show a little bit of personality like in the where he tricks the cops at the beginning of the movie you know true yes i i actually totally bought it and i'll tell you that and i'm not sure how you know deep we want to get on you know thematic material and stuff just yet but for me I felt like it was totally um, in line with the themes of, um, you know, bullying and uh, interactions that you have as a child um, where, you know, when you're going to school, there's the face that you wear when you talk to some people and the face you wear when you talk to other people and about the ways that we shift our personalities depending on who we're around and who we feel like we can present certain things to. And I also and say, I if, like- if you got a friend, um, how that would change. Because I think we do we do see a bit of a change in Freddie, and that's where the little conflict with them comes in, where he does feel a little bit more confident and kind of maybe talks a little bit too big for his britches when he's, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm friends with the whatever they're calling him at that point. And then that creates conflict when he goes away. But at that point, he'd been kind of bullied. And all of a sudden, he's a little more confident playing the role of his manager. And when you have that, when you have someone you can identify with and actually call your friend when it hasn't been the case, like that's certainly going to change your disposition. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that element plays both for him. It plays for the villain, too, who I think, you know, we've talked about maybe not necessarily being the most original villain. But I think even if he's not a well-written villain, he's a well-directed villain. Um, because I think that they were able that, that that David Sandberg was able to craft that notion of like this guy is just a bully. He's just a kid who you know the circumstances of his youth have led him to be jaded, just like Billy Batson, like our hero. The circumstances of his his youth have also led him to be jaded, and you know the ways that receiving great powers, how you use those, and how closely. Billy and the, you know, how closely Billy and the villain really come in, in terms of, you know, their personality sometimes, you know, there's some moments in the film where you're like, he's really not behaving any differently than the villain. The only thing that's separating them is the way that they look. And I think a big part of that is also the opening scene, because if you come into this movie and you don't really know a lot about who Billy Batson is, when you see that, uh, First, the first couple of minutes where you have the kid in the car with his dad and his bullying brother, you could think that this might be the protagonist in the story, that this is his origin story. But then he fails the test, right, when he makes it to the lair of the wizard, and he can't resist the temptation. But if he had been able to, then he would have uh, gotten the mantle of the wizard Shazam. He would have been the superhero, but he failed. So that particular moment took his path uh, in life a completely different way. So it's kind of interesting to see that contrast, right? Because he had the same opportunity that Billy had, but he made a different choice. And now the two of them, all these years later, have that conflict going on because Mark Strong's character still feels that he is entitled to have those powers. Um, So I thought that was actually a pretty strong opening scene. Well, about that, I was going to ask you, like, how much you guys read into the Seven Deadly Sins stuff and how much you really took that in as you were watching the movie, because I certainly did with respect to you know, it being a big deal when, like, the one thing that stayed inside of him was envy. But I'm not really sure how much I was thinking about the other sins, though, like I said, there was obviously a reason why that was the one that was internalized and probably talked about the most. Well, and I mean, if his, I don't know if they ever actually talk about it in the movie, but the, the thing that he touches that eventually, you know, attaches itself to him, that is called the eye of envy. It is, that is the, like, the physical manifestation of the power of envy, and that's the closest to him, to his heart. I mean, he has all these other things have come auxiliary to that because when you become a bully, you open yourself up to all of those things. You open yourself up to greed and to, you know, to anger and to, you know, all all those other sins. You know, it feels weird maybe saying that it seems kind of archaic. But again, I like that. Um, <laughs> but that's the reason why, to me, Envy was the last one. It was so close to him. It was in it was in him the whole time. Because that that was the one that, you know, led him really astray. It's the one that forced him to, you know, believe that other people had something that he didn't have um, and that he needed to open himself up to all those other terrible things in order to get that. Right. Yeah. I know. Did you you have any thoughts on that, Fred? I also thought this the scene where we first uh realize that he's been spending all these years interviewing people who have actually been uh, pulled into the cave with the wizard and who have also... So here's the thing. I assume all of these people must have failed the trial, right? Because otherwise, Shazam would have passed the mantle on to them. Yeah. So I guess my question is, 
why was he the one ultimately that was chosen to become the villain? Because he got back there, right? So it, I thought it was kind of interesting that so many people were tempted and that Billy ultimately was the only guy who was able to withstand that. And I'm not entirely sure what the rationale there really is, because up until then, we haven't really seen Billy be this pure-hearted guy. I mean, sure, he stood up for... Freddy. His, for Freddy, yeah, who wasn't really his friend at the time yet. But you get the sense that when he encounters Shazam, he kind of hands Billy those powers because he's sort of the last resort. He doesn't really have a whole lot of other options anymore. So he was just the guy who was there, and um, wow. he figured, well, it might as well be him, because now somebody else is out there who could wreak a lot of havoc... And I need somebody to become the champion. Well, I don't think I don't think Mark Strong. His name is I keep for, I keep forgetting. His name is Savannah. I guess that's how you said it. Yeah, um, Doctor Savannah. Doctor Savannah. Yeah, like I don't think he was really chosen to be the villain. I think he just kind of like stole the Eye of Sin, right? And when he wasn't supposed to. Right. He steals the Eye of Envy because the so of, all yeah. these other people, all these other people fail the test, but none of them internalize the failure to the point that he does, where it becomes his life's goal to get back at the wizard who told him he wasn't going to be enough. Like everybody else was just sort of like, well, that happened. And you know, if it meant that maybe they'll live their lives a little bit better then cool. He's the guy though, who hears and maybe rightly so he hears, you know, you're not good enough. Um, and that, you know, and it internalizes it and it, it's a bad thing. I mean, you really probably shouldn't tell a kid that like, you're never going to be good enough. And something but, his father has been telling him over and over again, even exactly, before that point. Yeah, ex- exactly. And, and I like that that shows that. And, and I like that when Billy goes back, it's really as a last resort for the wizard. Cause it shows that the, the, you know, the ancient one's not God. He doesn't, you know, he's not omnipotent. He doesn't, always make the right decisions um and maybe there's some degree of remorse for him telling this kid you know like you'll never be enough and it has caused all of these problems because he says that and then you know that leads to this kid's life's goal being to you know wreak havoc on the people who have told him you're not going to be enough right uh i want to talk a little bit about the just like the final stretch of this movie i i I i alluded to it earlier but i it's just like a problem in a lot of these, and it may be in even a couple of Marvel films, but more so the DC stuff, at least for me, is this, you know, no matter what comes before it, it seems to all kind of end in like a, a fight in a very dark place that is very CGI heavy. And certainly they're, they're using CGI in this, but like, I don't know. I thought the, the final act of the movie still worked better than just about any of those other kind of movies. Uh, we talked a little bit about the scene where he um, finds his mom and, you know, it's interesting that happens pretty close to when the whole entire last fight sequence happens at the winter wonderland it's really close to that like they interesting that they like they can insert like a character beat in there like that late in the movie and i think it just like kind of ties in really well to like the final revelation about the rest of the siblings the foster siblings it's it's kind of cool it's like uh he obviously he's kind of realizing in the moment where he sees like his mom's not really all that what he's built her up to be it's like he really has kind of found value in that other family and i thought even if there is, this is a CGI fight against the not most uh, compelling villain in the world, they're doing a lot of other interesting stuff at the same time in a very different looking setting. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a winter wonderland. I'm sure we've we've seen carnivals and stuff in, in movies before, but it's a lot more compelling than just like a really dark abandoned uh, warehouse district or something like we got in like uh, in like Justice League or Batman v Superman. You know, so that that was kind of where I was at. I was like, man, like. I, I, I don't know. I, I just really appreciated the look of it and how it just felt really different and didn't really lose sight of, like, the theme of the movie amidst all of this stuff, which included some traditional, you know, fighting 
among skyscrapers and stuff like that. But they even had a couple cool beats with that. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously you have to talk about how this is a great Christmas movie. <laughs> uh, you know, my it's, it's no Die Hard or Children of Men, but it's uh, you know, I, I think it paid homage to a lot of Christmas classics. Um, you know, pretty well, and I enjoyed that uh, that humor and that, that. Speaking of homages, we we kind of skipped over where they had the big. Uh, yeah, the call the the callback to Big, so that was I guess uh, very fitting for a movie of this nature. <laughs> yeah, the little piano joke that was fun. And again, this goes back to me talking about that I thought the villain was well directed, not not maybe not necessarily well written, but for example, in that final fight scene, um, maybe one of the the most tense moments is when Savannah captures Billy as a when he's in his you know Billy form when he's as a kid. And is like dunking his head into the the broken you know ice in the water uh, on the skating rink, and I was like, that is so emblematic of like a bully like flushing you know a, a, a kid's head down a toilet. I was like, it may not be a one to one, but that was such a a powerful symbol to me, and I think that that's something that you know people flying through skyscrapers and just, you know, uh, CGI laser beams that have been the hallmark of a lot of DC movies up until this point, you don't get that. You don't really get any of that with any of these other movies. Um, yeah. For, for, for and I do appreciate that this was the uh, second destructive carnival climax I've seen in a big screen movie this month after Dumbo. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably the better one. No, and I also enjoy the... This one at like, least made sense. As I talked about last week in Dumbo, Michael Keaton lights his own freaking circus on fire for basically no reason. Yeah, he just keeps, like, hammering the controls, and I don't really understand what purpose that was yeah, supposed to Yeah, at least here, but, is it's collateral damage, and it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I do want to get to that uh, scene, though, of course, where he finally accepts and embraces his family, and he decides to share the powers with them. Yeah. I think at that point, I really would have wish that some of those characters had been developed just a little better because i think they tried with some of them especially what is the his foster sister's name again the girl who wants to go to college mary yeah because they actually have a pretty i think poignant conversation when he's actually uh in his superhero getup and she doesn't realize who he is yet right and he gives her some not particularly great advice (laughs) but but that actually never pays off, right? Because we don't know what her decision ultimately is about going to college, whether she wants to take that next step or not. So I think they tried. And at the very least, they gave her some kind of background. But some of the other characters, especially the two guys, they don't really get highlighted a lot to the point where I really uh, thought, OK, now that they're being turned into superheroes, I feel good about that. Yeah, it's um, interesting. I think it, 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 they, they wanted some credit for probably like being rather diverse in their casting They're diverse, yes, but absolutely. then but then it was the two white siblings that actually got actual uh characterization so take so i guess get some one step forward a step back at the same time yeah and uh what was the, see i'm not very good at names the little girl who actually like hugs who hugs people a lot and who uh stala right so uh, Dala, yeah. Think, yeah yeah so Dala, i think they, they did a pretty, pretty good job with because uh Initially, when she finds out the secret, um, they can't be entirely sure whether they can trust her, right? Because uh, yeah, they know they're like, look, if you want to be a really good sister because you value us. And she's the youngest, yeah. But ultimately, their trust pays off because she doesn't tell them. They guess it themselves ultimately. So that was a nice, small little character arc that I appreciated for her. 
Right, and then there's just the the the, the other two uh, siblings. Like there's the there's the there's the there's the kid. Is it, is it I died. Is it, no, there's the is it Pedro? Pedro. Pe- yeah, Pedro, Pedro. Yeah. I mean, they talk about like he really likes to get swollen and work out, and I don't think they say another word about him the rest of the time. And, and of I, course, when he turns to a superhero, he's really swole and, and very ex- much excited insane. about it. Yeah, and then I honestly can't remember like what the personality trait was supposed to be of the other. I guess the Asian younger. He plays computer you know, games, and he's good with technology. He's a gamer, yeah. So that's. I mean, I guess that is kind of a personality for some people, but that that's all there is to him. And yeah, I mean, you said like they could have had a couple more fun beats with those characters. They it wasn't even like all of them like they didn't really even have time for all of them to like do anything all that cool at the end. Like it's kind of cool because Freddie's crippled and then he's not crippled, I guess when he's going to uh, turn into Adam Brody, which is an amazing casting decision by them, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, like, I mean, if you had just told, like, I honestly always like probably thought about, I was like, if you, if, I, I probably could have said Adam Brody, if you give me like five choices as to like who should play the adult version of that kid. But it was, I honestly didn't actually recognize it as Adam Brody at first. Cause they made all of them jacked, like, and gave him CGI muscles basically. I, but like uh, Darla, who's played by Megan Good, which maybe makes sense because maybe a little more high profile than the rest of those other adult versions of the kids besides Adam Brody is like she's the only one actually really doing any fighting at the same time. So it's like not only did you like not develop these other two guys when they were um, still kids, like they don't even get to do any cool shit in the fight either. Um, but whatever. I mean, there's only so many minutes you can put in one of these movies. Yeah, and the point isn't really so much about them. The point is about Billy, again, recognizing that he wants to be a part of their family and he decides to share his powers with them. So I thought that was a nice little payoff. Yeah, for sure. Um, One other thing I want to talk about with the movie a little bit, I mean, I don't don't expect you guys to have like any in-depth thoughts on this, but it's something that was on the top of my mind throughout because I'm I'm a Philadelphia native and it's, uh, (laughs) I mean, it's not every day where there's a non-M. Night Shyamalan movie that's set in Philadelphia, but they didn't actually shoot this in Philadelphia. M. Night shoots all of his movies there because he lives there. Uh, I I, want to say I am pretty impressed because you mentioned like this, uh, David Sandberg comes from a low-budget horror background. And this obviously isn't quite low budget, even if it's not like as high budget as a lot of these other superhero movies. He still did a pretty good job working on that scale and then like really passing Toronto off as Philadelphia like pretty well. I mean, I guess they could have done CGI for like the art museum scenes where they're on the art museum steps and they're like looking out down what has been Franklin Parkway in Philadelphia leading right into the heart of downtown. Uh, That's I guess that's probably pretty easy to fake with a green screen, but like a lot of the rest of the scenes that are shot outside i I was like yeah i I guess i can kind of see this looks like philadelphia so i thought the movie still looked pretty good and just had a a different color palette than other dc movies which is just very refreshing yeah i mean i i agree i thought um you know the aesthetic of the movie and i know i talked about this in my letterbox review overall i liked that the aesthetic was uh unique it was different from dc it was different from a lot of superhero movies that we've seen they really leaned into that like you know Baroque, old timey 1940s vision of what a superhero looks and sounds, and you know all, all the the paraphernalia and that kind of stuff. And they didn't, you know, they didn't. If you look at old Captain Marvel, you know, air quotes Shazam comics, like the Fawcett comics stuff from the 30s and 40s, his, his costume looks even more old timey. It's like a jacket with the lightning bolt on it and the cape. He looks like. He looks like an like a like a nineteenth century like Boer soldier or something. Mm-hmm. He doesn't necessarily look like a superhero. So they didn't go all the way with it, but I did like that that was you know an aesthetic choice to really uh, to lean into that aesthetic instead of lean away from it, which I feel like a lot of the the DC movies do, which is to you know kind of downplay 
the superheroiness of their superheroes. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, and I mean, as far as it being Philadelphia goes, that that shot of them on the steps, and this is just me as a composite artist bitching about it. I didn't really like the job that they did. I didn't think it looked great. It had what I call the the um, the compensation glow, which is when. Uh, you know, where you're shooting doesn't really necessarily look like where you're trying to make something look. So you just kind of amp the glow and saturation up on everything. And it was like, yeah, that looks kind of cool because it's like sundown and like, you know, it's they've got this golden hour thing going on, but there was just light bouncing everywhere. And I was like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. But overall, well, l- luckily not all of us have the knowledge of the stuff that you do. So it's just not going <laughs> to bother us as much. Um, yeah, but, but yeah. whenever you use this, setting like philadelphia and it doesn't even have to be that particular city really any type of city um that people can identify it becomes a lot easier to i guess recognize themes and make it more relatable because when you look at a film like aquaman i mean don't get me wrong atlantis looks great when you use all of that cgi but everything that we just talked about the very relatable components about bullying and trying to fit into a new place it becomes a lot easier when you see that in a location that kind of reminds you of where you might have grown up than a big city underwater that's just very awe-inspiring when you look at it. But obviously, that's not really a place that we can imagine ourselves in. So a movie like Shazam that is set in Philadelphia is something where we can all draw something from. Right. And it's easier to explain the geography of a place like that. It's really hard to explain the geography of a place like Atlantis or Themyscira from, uh, you know, from Wonder Woman, because those aren't real places. And Even nobody's going to nobody's going to spend big budget CD, CGI money to make thoroughfares and make the city look real and feel real. They're going to spend money to make what they need. So mm-hmm. for a movie like this, where you can really just go out on the street and say, OK, this this is not clearly Toronto uh, and it works to, to establish geography and help everything blend together instead of just feeling like little pieces, which is an important part of. It. Yeah. So. All right. Well, uh, before you sign off, I want to give you guys some chance for some final thoughts of Elijah. Anything we didn't touch on or just any other final thoughts you want to impart on us before we uh, wrap this one up? Yes, I do. I specifically want to talk about the uh, mid-credit scene right, because yeah. that was one of my most favorite moments of the entire movie, and it makes me actually pretty excited for the future of uh, of DC. Okay, so for the uninitiated, what the hell was that uh, talking caterpillar thing? <laughs> yes, please <laughs> that, do explain that. That is Mr. Mind, who is by far one of the most ridiculous villains in DC history, um, and that is that was a tame representation of Mr. Mind. Like usually Mr. Mind is is shown as like an inchworm caterpillar, uh, but his voice is supposed to be like really high pitched and like ridiculous. And his laugh is supposed to be like comically villainous and just totally outrageous. And he's supposed to turn into like a gigantic eight, like 25, however, you know, gigantic caterpillar. And I'm between that. And there was another Easter egg in the movie, um, that actually kind of is paired with that, which is when um, they're when the family is trying to escape from the Rock of Eternity from the from the Wizard's Lair, and they go to the room full of the doors, and they're opening all the doors, Fuck and up. you see all these weird things behind the doors. They open one of the doors, and there's the crocodile men behind the doors, who are another group of DC characters ah, that are. Yeah, I was wondering what they were. Yeah, the the crocodile men are. Um, in the comics, at least, are Mr. Mind's henchmen as part of the the basically 
I wouldn't call them the opposition to the Justice League because the Monster Society of Evil is not really that's not really a, that's not really a real comparison. But the Monster Society of Evil is like an actual entity that has huh. Mr. Mind and the Crocodile Men. And I think part of what I loved about that and part of what I loved about this whole movie is that it it leaned into that. It didn't shy away from it like a lot of other DC movies have. Well, one more thing I want to touch on before I go to Fred's final thoughts, because I meant to ask you guys this anyway before we wrapped up, was, I mean, do you have some kind of desire for where you want to see this go? Because you really enjoyed it, and it was pretty distinct from the other DC movies, but at the same time, they do remind you a couple times, like, hey, he's friends with Superman now, like, this is still a part of the universe, and you're here alluding to these other villains that they might have. Do you, is there a certain way you want to see them utilize this character going forward that's maybe not just typically simply being a member of the Justice League? Does it involve all those family members? Is it just a standalone movie involving some of these other villains? Uh, and maybe that is what that mid credit scene was setting up. I don't know. I just wondering if you had any kind of like thoughts on where it's like, I want to see them do this and not screw it up. I just want them to use the character the right way. And if that means not, you know, I don't expect him to be a central element of the Justice League. But, you know, go look, I'm, I'm the first person to tell you I don't really love Marvel, but look at Marvel as an example. Look at how they have utilized Ant-Man. Look at how they've utilized Spider-Man. Look at how they've even utilized Thor as characters that are maybe a bit more comical than your normal superhero. Um, and you're, you're, I'm not expecting them to have Shazam carry a, a future Justice League movie or whatever, but if he can if he fill can that role, play, in the, play like as big of a role in those movies as like Ant Man does in these Avengers movies or something, and just exactly be deployed correctly in that manner. Right, precisely. Got you, Fred. Any final thoughts from you? So this whole idea of where we'll see Shazam next, yeah, that obviously begs the question: Are we even going to see another Batman movie with Ben Affleck? Are we going to see Henry Cavill play Superman again? Oh God, because yeah, that's with, a whole can of worms that I hadn't even really yeah, thought yeah, to go into. Yeah, the whole like, problem with the DC universe is when you look at Marvel, they have everything mapped out for the next decade or so. They know exactly what movie they're going to release in what month up until 2030, pretty much. For DC Comics, they can't even seem to decide whether they still want to keep the same actor for their main parts. They, have, or they kind of maybe have two Jokers now? Um, yeah, which is another thing. A side note, I wanted to touch on that very quickly, too. I thought that trailer was terrific. But the issue here is that if you don't really know where this is all going to go, I'm very concerned how they're going to incorporate a character like Shazam into a universe that, again, up until now, has been all about being very bombastic, lots of CGI, very colorful, um, exuberant worlds. Like, I'm having a hard time looking at Aquaman and looking at Shazam and kind of reconciling those two worlds almost, just because the tones and styles are so fundamentally different. So don't get me wrong, I wish this franchise all the best, but right now I'm having a very hard time just picturing how that character will fit in with the bigger picture once they actually meet up in a movie together. Yeah, I guess I would just say for me, I'm not sweating it that much. I just want good movies, and, you know, it's nice that, like, it seems like DC is going to get some— hopefully gets, they get positive reinforcement from this. The money's good. The critical word is obviously good, and they'll be more apt to, like, kind of let people do their own thing and maybe find a couple pockets of humor. I mean, I think Barry Allen, The Flash, is supposed to maybe kind of be that, but who know, who the hell knows if they're ever going to be able to get that movie made. And like Fred said, you don't know what's going on with Superman. Like, the future of Batman as a character is— in question like you know matt reeves is doing his thing but we don't even know like 
what that who's going to play that Batman. We just know he's working on something. So it's like a lot of that stuff's up in the air. They got, I guess they have like the Joker movie that we saw the trailer for that's already made and they're shooting this Birds of Prey movie. And beyond that, everyone's like, huh, they'll be an Aquaman too because that movie made a billion dollars. But we're not... No one knows how it's going to come together, but I'm, I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to be upset if like they don't have this come together in Justice League final, final countdown or something in like five years. Like, I don't need that. I just, if they can just give me piecemeal movies that like I enjoy, like I'll be happy, you know? And I think this movie was thankfully funny and had some very charming performances and, you know, I guess I had a low bar going in, but I'll take it. So that's about where I'm at. So I definitely, I mean, if I doubt anyone's still listening that uh, didn't see the movie, but uh, I hope everyone uh, lets us know what they think at least and shares their feedback when we post this episode because I'm curious to hear how other people reacted to it as well. Elijah, before we sign off, do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah. um, It could just be your uh, letterbox if you don't want to go into other uh, professional obligations. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fine. Um, Total Drama Rama will be on Cartoon Network this entire month. Uh, Every day, new episodes uh, every Monday. Uh, That's on Cartoon Network. On TNT, uh, season four of Animal Kingdom starts May 28th. So if, uh, if uh, if that's your thing. Uh, it's going to be an exciting season. All right, Fred, where can people read your, read your rapidly growing letterbox account? <laughs> uh, my letterbox account that's, uh, under Fred Kolb, uh, F R E D K O L B. Uh, two things I want to plug. The first thing is the criterion channel is online as of yesterday. If you signed up before April 8th, you get a free 30, um, day trial. I think now it's a free 15 day trial. So that's still a pretty decent amount of time. Check it out. They've got a lot of movies on there already. I think they're doing themed days and themed weeks. So that's really interesting to get into some movies you might not have explored otherwise. And there's a very uh, gorgeous Netflix show out right now called Our Planet, which is um, by the same people who've made Planet Earth and also uh, narrated by David Attenborough, who's like 150 years old by now, but (laughs) still doing very good, uh, reminding us that we might not have a planet to live on uh, in a couple of years. So again, very beautiful camera work, and it also is a very poignant um, kind of experience just telling us that there's a lot of work we need to do if we want to preserve some of the beautiful nature that we have out there so that's highly recommended yeah i appreciate i appreciate you uh taking that where you took it i'm usually just telling people to plug their own stuff but maybe i got to start doing that saying hey is there something that uh, someone recommends our listeners should watch and even if it's not a specific uh movie you can find plenty of different specific movies on the criterion channel which i'm glad you thought to plug that because we want that thing to survive uh r.i.p film shook uh as usual i'm at josh jernavoy j-o-s-h-j-u-r-n-o-v-o-y on twitter same thing on letterboxd and uh uh, please, if you are a Spotify user and you're just not all that into like Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or whatever, because I know Spotify has like a lot of users, uh, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify because we're on Spotify now. You can just uh, search in Spotify podcast, The Rewind Josh. It'll be the, the first one that shows up. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you doing that. Everyone stay tuned. Uh, after this, the next podcast will probably be on The Beach Bum or maybe it will be on Hellboy which uh, Elijah will be joining us again with with another first-time guest joining the two of us. That'll be very exciting. So everyone stay tuned for that. We'll see you next time.